Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you um, for the opportunity to, to worship you alongside um, others. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. God, I pray uh, that the words people hear this morning are yours and not mine. I, I pray that your word would speak loud and clear. And I pray that, um, that we would be a people, that when you return, you would find us faithful. And to that end, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been so confident in uh, a course of action, uh, a direction in life that <clears throat> when you went out and you achieved that which you, you set out to accomplish, you were, uh, you were disappointed. You found that, um, that getting what you set out to accomplish um, didn't fulfill you, that it actually uh, deeply disappointed you. And I can think of maybe a, a couple extreme illustrations of that. Um, imagine a, a young man, 18 years old, and he decides he knows at 18 what he wants to do with the rest of his life. He knows the career path that he's going to choose, and so he goes about finding the right university or college. He goes and selects the right degree program, and, and he works hard, and he gets that degree, and, 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 and then he goes out and he lands that job, only to find out a few months into it that what he's going to spend the rest of his career doing, he doesn't want to do. It's not what he was made for, and, and, and it is soul-crushing to be in the environment that he's in, and so he, he's finding himself deeply disappointed, though he's gotten what he wanted. Imagine a, a young girl who, who believes she, more than anything, was meant to be married, and she pursues marriage with all she has, and she, she's identified the right guy, and she pursues him, and, and he pursues her, and a relationship begins, and it blossoms, and the, the, the engagement happens, and, but as things go along, she's realizing there's things about the relationship that aren't necessarily right, and there's things about him that don't necessarily add up, and, and the relationship abruptly ends, and the engagement is broken, and you imagine the disappointment and the heartache. All of us have a preferable future that we're working towards. All of us are, are looking towards the horizon, looking towards the future, and we believe we know what should take place and what should happen. And oftentimes we realize the older that we get, the more disappointment that follows because what we want to happen doesn't always happen. What we want to, to, to see come to be doesn't always take shape and take form. And, and oftentimes we point the finger at God and blame him. We look at God and say, I think you're the one that put me on this career path. And it's not what I was meant to do, and I blame you. Or you're the one who, who put this individual in my life. I thought, I thought you gave him to me, and he's not the one that I was supposed to be with. And there's heartbrokenness, and there's, there's blame being pointed at God. And see, when we encounter these things in life, and it's going to happen, when we encounter the disappointment of not seeing our reality realized, there's opportunity for wisdom. There's opportunity for us to take a step back and realize that, that our vantage point towards something is singular, but, but there's a God who sees every angle. He sees all things. And, and in addition to that, he's someone who directs all things. Someone who sees all things, we call that omniscience, and somebody who can direct all things, we call that sovereignty. But in addition to that, he's actually all-powerful, not only because he see everything from every angle and make his will happen, he has the power to bring about anything and everything. He's all-powerful, we call that omnipotence. But add to that, 
we find out that he's good. That not only does he see everything and direct everything and power over everything, he's holy and perfectly good. That everything he bends his will toward turns out good. Not evil, good. And see, as we grow in wisdom and an understanding of who he is and what he's done, then we begin to have a different perspective and we begin to hold life with open hands and we begin to pursue faithfulness rather than control of life. This morning, uh, we're returning to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 17, so you could turn uh, there with me now. Um, And I I realize that um, it's been a bit since we were in Luke, and uh, there's probably people here that um, haven't been following along with this journey, and so I want to give us a little bit of a recap, so maybe you can can jump in with us right where where we're at. The Gospel according to Luke. Luke uh, wrote this as an orderly account of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of a guy named Jesus Um, It is an orderly account that he writes to an individual named Theophilus, and that name means literally lover of God. And and whether uh, Luke was writing to an individual who actually had that name or whether he's writing to us as disciples, the, the result or the question really is the same. Are you a lover of God? Do you love him? And see, how you answer that question really, really says a lot about how you hold life, how you direct life, how you plan life. Are you a lover of God? Well, uh, the first nine chapters of Luke are really about establishing Jesus' identity. Uh, Jesus, is, he's, he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing people, and he's casting out demons, and he's, he's resurrecting people from the dead, and there's all this power on display in order to prove who he is. And a lot of people, they call him Christ, or they call him Messiah. One's a Greek word, one's a Hebrew word. Both have the same meaning as, as anointed one. It's referring to him as king, the king, that they've been waiting for. Jesus doesn't refer to himself that way. When you look at the way that Jesus refers to himself, he calls himself the son of man. Now that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's this son of man, and he's presented to the ancient of days. The ancient of days being God the Father, being, uh, having existed from eternity past. He's called the ancient of days. And so here's this son of man. He's presented to the God the Father. God the Father gives him all power, all authority. He gives him a kingdom that makes everything right and lasts forever. And what we understand from this is that this person is human, but in order to wield this kind of authority, he has to be divine. You understand from human history that no human being has been able to lead, to govern, to have authority over other people in a way that is good, that lasts for very long. The only way that this this being can have dominion over all creation in a right and just way for eternity is that he must be divine. So he's part God, he's part man. He's a God-man. When Jesus talks about himself, he calls himself the son of man. He's referring to this. He's the son of man. So Jesus has all these people following him around. 12 of them, he's called apostles. 
some 70 or so uh, he refers to as. Then there's a group of religious leaders who are, are really uh, bent on, um, on, on destroying him and discrediting him. And then there's a large crowd that's following him, and they're basically there to see the show, all the power that's demonstrated, the healing and all that stuff. And so all of these people are following Jesus, and all of them have a preferred future in mind. All of them are thinking about this kingdom that they've heard about from the prophets. They're thinking about how that's going to be established. All of them have an idea of how that's supposed to go down, how that's supposed to shape, take shape. All of them have this idea, this preferred future that they're working toward, and every single one of them is going to be disappointed. Some of them think that Jesus is the one. Some of them think that Jesus is definitely not the one, but every single one of them is going to be disappointed. So in chapter nine of Luke, Jesus comes down from this mountain and says his face is turned towards Jerusalem and there's this journey that begins. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to become this anointed king. We read in in chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's going to become king, but not in a way that any other king has ever been named king. He's not going to be lifted up and put on the throne by human hands. He's going to be lifted up and nailed to a cross by human hands. It will be a cross, it will be a death, it will be his resurrection that makes him king. He's going to become king. And the way he's going to become king is not understood by anybody. Nobody gets it. Everybody has their own idea of that preferable future that they're working towards. Their own idea of the way things that should happen. They're not seeing the way things God sees. See, people in Jesus' day, they they looked at the coming of the Son of Man or the coming of this Messiah and they thought it was all one instance that this this Messiah or the Son of Man would come and with complete power he would then set up his kingdom and begin to rule and make all things right at that time. He was looking at that one event but from God's perspective it's two events. The first event he comes in weakness. He comes born of a virgin. He comes in humility. He ultimately is crucified and killed but rises from the dead. The second time he comes, he comes in power. He comes to reign and to rule. We live between those two advents. The cross has happened. The resurrection has happened. The ascension has happened. We wait for his return. Now, where we're at this week and next week is we're working through this, the final leg of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. We're we're on this final leg of the journey. And Jesus is going to spend this leg of the journey not trying to give his disciples or his followers more information so that they can better control the outcome. He's going to instill in them faithfulness. That's the goal. And so we're going to be in this uh, this section for this week and next week. And the key verse in all of this is uh, is Luke 18.8 where he says, he says this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the key thing. When he comes again the second time, will he find faith on the earth? So that's where we're moving. So let's dive into the passage. Luke 17, look at the verse four verses with me. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. He begins by reminding us of the reality of our situation. We live in a broken, sin-filled world. And the question is, how do we respond to that? And he lays out two pathways. One is that you can promote sin. You can, you, you, you can push sin. You can lead people toward rebelliousness and the rejection of God. And ultimately, you can lead people away from the truth of who God is, or you can confront sin. You can rebuke sin. You can lead people towards repentance. And I want to say that, that, that rebuke and forgiveness, they go hand in hand. And some of us are really good at forgiving without confronting, but some of us are really good about rebuking and never forgiving. And they go hand in hand. But Jesus is saying here, it's either you're leading people away from God or you're leading people for God, toward him. Either you're, you're pushing people towards sin or you're confronting sin. There's not a third option. There's not a third option. Like, there's not like a, 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 like a Christian island out there that can avoid community. There's not such a thing as, as being Christian Switzerland when it comes to community. Why don't you take a look around? Look to the left and look to the right. Now look in front of you. Now really awkward and, and, and creepy like, turn around to the people behind you. There's no such thing as a Christian island. When you look at scripture and when you, when you consider what Jesus had to say about what it means to be Christian, it, there's no option of, of choosing a route that 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 does not connect to other people. There's no option of living in isolation. There's no option of intentionally living apart from community. We are connected to one another. The reality is of living in Christian community, it's like doing crafts with glitter. It gets all over you, you can't help it. It's messy. And here's what Jesus is saying, is, is, is will you lead people Away from God, will you push them towards sin or will you confront sin? Will you, will you be a person who forgives people? And you lead and push people towards, towards God. Now, you might look at this, this is a really tall order. That seems pretty difficult, right? When you think about what it means to live in Christian community and to have the courage to confront sin and the humility to allow people to confront you in your sin and to bring about forgiveness, that's a pretty tall order, don't you think? What do you think it's going to take in order to do that? Look at what it says next. Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We think we need more faith. That's what the apostles thought. That's the right response. In order for me to live in this kind of Christian community you're talking about where there's rebuking and there's forgiveness and all this, I'm going to need a larger amount of faith. That's what we tend to think. We tend to view faith that way. However, in the Gospel of Luke, that's not the kind of faith we see. In the Gospel of Luke, the word faith is not used very often, but when it's used, faith is not a possession. It's something completely different. It's not some sort of like spiritual mass that you can have or hold in your heart that gets greater or smaller depending on your circumstance. Faith is not a possession, it's a disposition. The first time we see faith in Luke is in Luke chapter five. 
there's a man who's paralyzed and his friends bring him to Jesus to be healed, only they can't get to him. And so they go up on the roof and they dig through this earthen roof in order to lower this man down to Jesus. And look what it says. This is Jesus' response to him. Chapter five, verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So two things are the result for this man. He's healed. More than that, his sins are forgiven. This is, like, this is a down payment on what Jesus would do for him at the cross. As a result of his friend's faith. Is Jesus looking at the, these, these friends of this guy and saying, there's something inside of you. There's some sort of spiritual mass of something that's really, really big. And based on that, I'm going to heal your friend. See, it's not a possession. It's a disposition. It's a quality of character that leads towards action. The faith is what's demonstrated. The faith is here, here these guys are carrying their friend, digging a hole through somebody else's roof and damaging it in order to see their friend saved and healed. Uh, later, we see a centurion who um, he, he sends to Jesus uh, uh, this request to heal his servant. And the centurion says to Jesus through, through his other servants who go, he says, I know you don't have to come here to, to, to heal him. You have authority and you have a power. You can heal him from wherever you are. You don't even have to come here to do it. And Jesus says, in all of Israel, I haven't seen such faith like that. What is he talking about? There's a woman who comes to Jesus when he's dining at a table and she breaks open this perfume bottle and pours it on his feet and she's crying on his feet and she's washing his feet with her hair and he calls this faith. There's a woman who, who meets him in a crowd and sneaks up behind him and grabs the back of his shirt and she finds healing and grabbing onto that and he talks about her faith. When Jesus confronts anxiety and fear and some of the people that are following him, Again, he's, he's addressing the disposition of their faith. But when the disciples are in a boat with him and it's being tossed by this storm on the sea and they wake him up and he rebukes the wind and the wave and, and he confronts them and he says, where's your faith? And the reality is it's, it's, not, it's not the possession of faith, it's your disposition of faith. It's, it, it's who are you trusting in? Have you forgotten about the guy who's in the boat with you? Faith like a mustard seed could do basically the impossible. What Jesus is highlighting here, he's not talking about the size of faith, he's talking about the object of faith. What or who is your faith in? That's what matters. The object of your faith. You see, when it comes to living in Christian community with one another, when it comes to having the courage to confront sin or the humility to be confronted with your own sin, when it comes to, to that kind of love and that kind of forgiveness, the only way that's possible is to remember that you've been forgiven. Like the only way you can forgive and you can forgive and you can forgive is because you have been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven by Jesus. The object of your faith. When Jesus returns, will he find us with a great faith in ourselves? Faith in our accomplishments, faith in what we do for a living. Will he find us with great faith in our resources or responsibilities or time or money? Or will he find us with great faith in him? It's not a possession, it's a disposition toward him that results in action. We'll look at the next bit now, verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Look at that last line. We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Anybody feel a deep problem with that? The reality is, is, is culturally, we as Americans are pretty prideful. We as Americans are are masters of our own destiny. We're the boss. We're the ones in charge. Uh, uh, Most of us, the idea of bending the knee to another person is just unheard of and it's absurd because of the immense pride of who we are as a people. Humility is hard for us. The people that Jesus was talking to in this context are the poor and the powerless. Luke is writing to the very bottom of the pyramid Socially speaking, these were people who literally were slaves and servants. They didn't have a problem with Jesus and what he says here. They understood it. Do you have a problem with what Jesus says here? He calls you a servant. He calls me a servant. Do you have a problem with that? See, there's there's this part of faith which must recognize the difference between our master and us. And if you remember the object of our faith, Jesus, he's the one who said the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you and I better than our master? There's this, there's this part of faith that must recognize who he is and who we are. And the question is, is when the Son of Man returns, will he find us faithful? Will he find us servants being servants or will he find us servants trying to be masters? Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face in Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Um, Jesus healed a lot of people. He healed a lot of leprosy. Leprosy was a skin disease that was viewed as um, a highly infectious, easily transmittable. People who had skin diseases like this, called lepers, they were ostracized from the community. They were kept apart from the rest of, of, of society. There's one instance in Luke chapter 5 where one of these, these, these people comes to Jesus and he, he brace, breaks the rules, so to speak, and he comes and he gets inside Jesus' bubble and he asks to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus does this incredible thing where he actually touches this man. You see, in that, 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 that view, leprosy was, was highly infectious and that if you touched a leper, you would get leprosy. And they, they had the same idea about sin. You come into contact with something sinful. It makes you sinful. And so when they saw Jesus hanging out with sinners, they thought it would make Jesus a sinner. But just the opposite happened. Just as Jesus imparted healing and cleanliness to the lepers instead of getting leprosy, so Jesus imparted righteousness to those sinners instead of becoming sinful. 
But when he healed the man, he directed him to go to the priest. Now, in the Old Testament, there's all these prescriptions about how to handle leprosy, especially how to handle leprosy once you've found you've been healed. Okay? Once you've been healed, you've got to go to the priest, he inspects you, and then he can declare to the community that you're able to come back into society. He can declare your cleanness. However, there's nothing in the Old Testament, there's no prescription on how you actually become clean. There's no prescription how you actually get healed. So here these 10 lepers are, and they're not approaching Jesus like the guy in chapter five does. They're staying far away from him, and they're calling out to a master, which as we just talked about, that's a form of faith, right? They're recognizing the difference between who he is and who they are. And they say, have mercy on me. They're calling for recognizing that he has power that they don't, that they need. Again, there's a difference between him and them. They're steep, keeping their distance. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. He doesn't heal them on the spot. He says, go show yourself to priests. So when they begin to move toward their priests, what are they doing? They're acting on faith. They're, they're not healed when they leave. They're healed as they're leaving. One of these individuals, as he's going, realized he's been healed. And he stops, and he turns around, and he comes back to Jesus. And he praises him. He falls down his feet. He worships him. He glorifies God. And then you see in this moment, you hear in Jesus' words, like he's almost, you can see it in your mind's eye, he's looking out towards the horizon where he just saw these other nine lepers disappear and he's wondering where have they gone? Why haven't they come back? How come this guy came back? And we find out he's a Samaritan. He's not even of the people of God. Samaritans were people of, 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 of mixed race between Judaism or, or, or Syrians. They also had mixed religion. They were, they were part Jewish, part pagan. Samaritans didn't go to Jerusalem to worship. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. That means when Jesus sent them to their priests, this guy was going to a different priest in a different direction. But he comes back to Jesus. And he worships Jesus. And, and what we see here, he says, your faith has made you well. Literally what it means is, your faith has saved you. Again, this is a down payment on what Jesus would do for him at the cross. Not only is he healed, he's saved. Nine other people were healed, but not saved. He's healed and saved. And then what does Jesus say? Go your own. He doesn't say go, find the priest. He says go your own way. In other words, he's encountered the priest. And Jesus is a better priest because not only can he declare you clean from sin, he can make you clean from sin. No other priest can do that. No other priest could heal. They could only declare if you were healed. He heals. Now, there's a ton we could talk about in this passage. But in light of the context that we're dealing with, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? What do we need to understand from this passage? I think it's this. If you and I are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be a people who don't promote sin and rebelliousness, but we're going to be a people that, but, that confront sin that, that lead people towards repentance, that forgive other people, if we're gonna be a people whose, whose object of faith isn't in and of ourselves, it's Jesus, and we're living for him, if, if we're gonna be a people who understand with humility, we're not the masters, we're the servants, and our only role is to obey his commands, if we're going to follow Jesus in this way, then we're also gonna follow him in other ways. Jesus brought about healing. Now, we are called to bring about reconciliation in our world. And we do that through serving. We are called to serve as Jesus served. We are called to help the poor and the powerless. We are called to, to deal with that which is unjust. We have been saved. 
not by works, but we have been saved to do good works. So you know. And so you and I, we might go out and we might clothe people who need to be clothed. And we might help people who are homeless to find homes. And we might help that struggling teenager dealing with that unwanted pregnancy to be able to have and give birth and provide for that child. You might help those people who are struggling with addiction to become free of that. You might go to great lengths to help people be free from a, a, a host of maladies that, that affects them. And yet, most of the people that you help won't turn to Jesus. Will you stop helping? Will you stop serving? Jesus He's just healed 10 lepers. Only one came back. If I were in his shoes, I'd be like, why am I going to Jerusalem to die for the rest of this planet? One out of 10 is my success rate. But that's not Jesus. And that's not his heart. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that in all this helping and all this serving, we have to recognize that being faithful to him does mean that we will find rejection by the world. Will you be faithful despite being rejected by the world? Well, the last section here, and uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it and, and break it down very small. I'm gonna uh, do a kind of a, um, a 30,000 foot survey of it, um, point out some things, and then get to the point of it. The last part of Luke 17 is uh, eschatology. It's about the end of the world as we know it, okay? And just as REM got it wrong, so did the people of Jesus' day. The end of the world, that's eschatology. And so Jesus is going to talk about what's going to happen when he returns that second time, that return that we're waiting for. And, and, and the question is prompted by some religious leaders and they are asking about when the kingdom of God are coming or, or how it's going to come. And Jesus says a, a few things that's worth pointing out. One, he says, you're gonna notice it. There are gonna be people that are gonna try to tell you, you know, kingdom is coming here, the kingdom is coming there, or there's the Messiah, or there's the, there's the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, no, 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 no it's gonna be obvious to everybody. Like lightning flashing from one side of the sky to the other, it, it's gonna be noticeable, okay? Everybody's gonna know. Second thing to understand, that doesn't happen until I die. I'm gonna be raised up first. I'm going to be killed first. He was reminding his disciples once again of that which they don't understand, that he's going to become king, not by being put on a throne by human hands, but by being nailed to a cross by human hands. But one day he's going to come back and he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to be like the days of Lot. It's going to be like the flood. It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah when the fire rained down from heaven. There's going to be people who are going about doing their jobs. There's going to be people who are pursuing their careers and getting their degrees and, and, and following their, their path and, and climbing the ladder. There's going to be people who are pursuing romantic relationships. There are going to be people who are getting engaged and getting married and having children. And there are going to be people who are all about the business of doing their life. And God's return, Jesus' return, is going to interrupt all of that. It's going to interrupt all of that. And in Jesus' language... There's gonna be two people who are doing the exact same thing, but one of them is faithful and one of them is faithless. And the faithless one is removed. The faithless one is destroyed. The faithless one is judged. The faithful one remains and is saved. Now, I don't wanna dive into this too much, but get to the, the, the bottom line of this. When the Son of Man returns, will he find us living like he was going to return? When you got up this morning, 
Did you say, Jesus could come back today. I wonder what I should wear. How many of you, until I said Jesus could come back, how many of you up until this moment, this morning, have not even given that a thought? See, all of us, I think, no, I won't say all of us. I think many people in this room give mental assent to the truth. Jesus is gonna come back. And that we would call that faith. What that is is a possession of belief we hold in our minds, but it hasn't really entered our hearts and come out through our hands because many of us are not living like Jesus will come back. I think there's a lot of us who believe that Jesus coming back is the worst possible news we could hear. Because some of you, you're looking at your career and you're looking at what you want to accomplish and you're looking at your goals in life and Jesus coming back would wreck all of that. And some of you are looking at, at, at love and you want to be in love and you want to be married and you want to want to know what that kind of intimacy is like with another human being. And Jesus coming back would ruin that. Some of you want to be parents and you want to know what it's like to hold that baby and to, and to watch that baby learn how to ride a bike and become a professional athlete or president of the United States and you want to know the joy of their accomplishments. Like you want to be a parent and Jesus coming back ruins all that. Some of you can't wait for retirement. You can't wait for that day where you get to walk out of your place of work, say bye-bye. You can't wait for that day where you say bye-bye to the kids. You can't wait for that day to climb up in that RV and hit the road. And the idea of Jesus coming back ruins that. See, the reality, there's nothing wrong with wanting a career. There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married and experience that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be, be, be parents. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting to retire. Like, all those things are good things. The problem is, is we take those good things and we elevate them and we make them ultimate things and we put them over the return of Christ. See, what if we didn't live that way? See, that's a life of control. A life of faith holds your future with an open hand, with a trust, a faith, a disposition towards that one who sees every angle that you don't see, who directs things beyond your control, who has power to do immeasurably more than you can possibly understand, and who is ultimately good. He's good, he's perfect. His returns is not an evil thing. It's not a calamity on your life. Is it possible that the return of Jesus could far outweigh a fantastic career? Could it be possible that the return of Jesus is better than sex with your spouse that you've been waiting for? Could the return of Jesus possibly be better than seeing your kid become president? Could the return of Jesus possibly better than a brand new Airstream. Could it be that Jesus is better? We look at our future. All of us, we have a preferred future in mind. We have goals. There's, there, we have these things that we are working forward and working towards and that we want. And yet we will all recognize that we are limited in our viewpoint. 
We're limited in our ability to make it happen. We're limited in our control or power. And, and we're limited in our goodness because we're selfish and we're self-centered. And often the things that we are planning towards fail. Is Jesus' plan better? Now, um, when Jesus comes back, will he find us faithful? That's a thing that's going to run through next week. Um, we're not done dealing with this issue yet. But for the sake of time, we're going to cut it off there. And I want to close our time together this morning with communion. Um, the elements uh, are on the inside aisle. You can begin to pass those now. But as we partake of communion, there's, there's three things that I want to talk about with you. The first is that, you know, if, if this was faith, we'd make it bigger. Right? If, if, if ingesting these elements gave you more faith, we would pass around hunks of bread and we'd have large goblets. Okay? Instead, we find these little things. These little things. And, and, and like a mustard seed, it's, it's not the size of it, it's the object that it points you to that's, that matters. It's the object that it points you to. There, there's a little piece of bread in here. And that symbolizes the object of Christ's body. Born just as you were born. Comes into this world a life completely humble, completely poor, a body that lives and breathes and laughs and cries, a body who ultimately would go and sacrifice. He would go and be falsely accused of things he didn't do. He would be condemned. His body would be punctured. His body would be stabbed through. His body would be pierced with nails and he would be pinned down to a cross and he would lose all freedom so that you could go free. A body that would die so that you and I can live. And there's this, this little bit of juice and it symbolizes this precious blood of his that is poured out. It's blood that accomplished for us what we can't accomplish. It establishes a relationship with us between the God of the universe who's omniscient and sovereign and omnipotent and good. Completely and wholly and perfectly good. We have no chance of having a relationship with anybody like that except for what this symbolizes. The blood of Christ shed for us. It's, it's not the object. It's not the size of, of the faith. It's the object of the faith that this points us to. The second thing is, by taking this, it's, it, it's not going to give you more faith. Rather, it's an act of faith. This is not going to give you a greater possession of faith. This is rather acting on a disposition of faith. That as you take this, you are proclaiming who he is. You are proclaiming what he has done for you. This is a character attitude that is bent towards him. It's not homo incurvatus. It's not man turned in on himself. It's man turned toward God when you proclaim his death and resurrection by partaking of this. Lastly, this symbolizes a better plan. All of us have plans for how we're going to redeem ourselves. All of us have ideas about how we can save ourselves. All of us are trying to prove ourselves to God. And, and we're trying to heap up good things that outweigh all the bad things that we've done. 
We're trying to have those superhero moments where when God sees us, he's gonna be like, wow, I'm really glad you're here because of how awesome you are. All of us, if we were to write the story of redemption, we would write ourselves as becoming somehow superheroes who ever overcome sin and brokenness and, and all of that on our own. You see, that plan fails. If that's your plan, it will fail. It will either lead you completely prideful and arrogant or it will leave you in the depths of despair and sadness. It will fail. There's only one plan that works to redeem you. And it's what Jesus has done for you. This morning, I'm, I'm gonna let you partake of communion on your own. In a moment, I'm gonna step off the stage here. And, and here's what I would ask, two things. First of all, don't be Christian Switzerland. Partake of communion with others. You're not an island unto yourself. Second, as you partake, considering meditating or praying this. I give you control. Lord Jesus, I give you control. I will be faithful to you as an unworthy servant is faithful to their master. Heavenly Father, Thank you for a plan that's better than ours. Thank you for the fact that in addition to seeing everything and directing everything and having power over everything, you are good. If you were not good, none of this would matter. But because you are good, you saved us. Yours is the plan that works. Lord Jesus, I pray that New Community Church would be a people upon your return who you find to be faithful. In Jesus' name.